Hello, everyone. This is Volts, and I'm your host, David Roberts. As we speak, Democrats in Congress are at work putting together a budget reconciliation bill that will include enormous swaths of President Biden's agenda, including his climate agenda. One of the policies being discussed for inclusion is the creation of a Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator, more commonly known as a Green Bank. The idea of a federal green bank has been floating around forever. There was one in the ill-fated Waxman-Markey climate bill of 2009, which never made it through the Senate, and there's been one introduced in Congress virtually every year since. But this time, it might happen, so it's time to brush up on what a green bank is and what it does. It would not, contrary to some popular misconceptions, be an agency of the federal government, nor would it finance projects purely with federal money. Rather, it would be an independent, nonprofit entity that uses an initial grant of federal money to pull private capital off the sidelines and into climate-related projects. After the initial grant, the bank would be self-sustaining. The model has been tested. There are green banks in more than a dozen states, which have generated $5.3 billion in clean energy investment since 2011, including $1.5 billion in 2019 alone. And there are more than 20 states where the process of establishing a green bank has begun. These city and state-level green banks are popular and successful, but because states and cities tend to be short on funds, they too often lack the capital needed to fund worthy projects. Right now, there are more than $20 billion worth of projects that are eligible for green bank funding and are now waiting. One of the roles of a federal green bank would be to capitalize all those local banks to get those projects rolling. To learn more about green banks, I was happy to talk with their greatest champion, Reed Hunt, the co-founder and CEO of the Coalition for Green Capital. Hunt has been advocating for green banks for over a decade, including seven years on the board of the Connecticut Green Bank, and it is largely through the coalition's work that the network of state and local green banks has been established. I was eager to talk with Hunt about how a national green bank would work, the kinds of projects it would fund, how it would account for equity, and the potential, if it's done right, for a green bank to accelerate the clean energy transition. Reed Hunt, welcome to Volts. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. I was talking to a friend of mine in Tennessee, and he told me that, that you're from Tennessee. Yes, indeed. And he said that you were the best analyst and commentator about energy issues in the whole state of Tennessee. <laughs> I don't know whether that's whether that's damning by faint praise or, or not. <laughs> well, then I said to then I said to my friend, no, no, the two of you are, because the person I was talking to was my high school classmate, Al Gort. Oh, funny. Yes, he and I have bonded over our Tennessee roots before. That's funny. Well, speaking of history, <laughs> I want to talk about green banks with you, but just real quick by way of setting context before that, you know, Obama faced 
a, a similar situation, different in a lot of ways, similar in some ways. But you uh, wrote a book about Obama's response to the sort of crises he faced, the financial crisis uh, that was extremely critical of Obama. So, so as we contemplate what Biden should be doing in the similar situation, let's review real quickly. What did Obama do wrong, and what does that tell us about how Biden should be approaching uh, this mess? Well, you're in a very small club, uh, which is the club of people that know about the book called A Crisis <laughs> Wasted. Um, and I'm happy to, um, as, as a founding member of the club, I'm, I'm very happy to have a new member. Um, so the, the problem in 2008 and nine was that, as Rahm Emanuel said at the time, you know, a crisis is too good to waste. But all of the advice to uh, the president-elect uh, was small where it should have been big and constrained where it should have been bold and was short range rather than long range. Uh, the people were not badly motivated, but in retrospect, and at the time, uh, their counsel was insufficient to meet the needs not only of the moment, but of the next 10 years. The big difference for the Biden administration, and indeed for the entire Democratic Party in the current year, in the year 2021, the decision from the, from the very beginning of this presidency and of this particular Congress was to follow what Larry Summers himself said in 2008. And, in, <laughs> and it was this, he said, the risks of doing too little are much, much worse than the risks of doing too much. And so they didn't, Larry didn't follow his own advice then, but the <laughs> entire Democratic Party is um, taking it to heart now. The second learning that the Biden people took from the past was not to do just one thing at a time in sequence and then run out of time, right. but to do everything on every front as fast as possible, pressing on every single topic, the democracy agenda, the child care, the uh, uh, COVID relief, the climate change, the infrastructure, all topics are being pursued in parallel simultaneously. The tactical decision of the Obama administration was to do one thing at a time in sequence. Uh, the problem with that is that it played into the hands of opponents who correctly felt that if they could delay action, ultimately inaction would triumph. Entropy would take over. <laughs> So the decision made by President-elect uh, Obama was to do climate change and energy legislation after healthcare instead of simultaneously. Right. The decision made by this president was to do them together, do all things together. So that's why the reconciliation package includes uh, climate change remedial measures, in other words, save the world measures, as well as childcare. So there's two different things. One is go big, and the second is do everything in parallel. Yeah, and that strategy, I guess, is coming to a head here with the reconciliation bill, which indeed is gigantic and contains uh, just about everything you could think of. So it'll be a it'll be a real interesting historical A B test. Uh, won't it to see if if this in fact if this new strategy does in fact work better? Well, and and it's a it's a test that has to be passed, right? Meaning uh, this is the in terms of the role of government in the United States to uh, stop a climate catastrophe. This is the last chance, right? Right. So among all the things being proposed for inclusion in the reconciliation bill, which are many, uh, one is. A green bank. And so I have, 
you know, I've been following this area for a long, long time now. I ke- I've heard about green banks sort of in the background, on the periphery, over and over again. It seems like an evergreen idea that never really seems to get over the finish line. So by way of just sort of framing this discussion, maybe you can just tell us in sort of the simplest terms, what is a green bank? A green bank is a um, publicly funded institution that aims to combine public and private investment to build something. Mm. So you have to believe that public-private investment is a good thing or you won't like a green bank. Um, Public-private investment actually is how we build all infrastructure. So it shouldn't be too challenging to say, let's have public-private investment build the clean power platform. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, The way that a road is built uh, is that the government, a state government, for example, or a, a county government issues a bond. The bond is purchased by the private sector. The private sector then, through the mechanism of the bond, provides the money. And then, you know, overwhelmingly, the state contracts out to the private sector to actually build the road. Okay, that's a public private investment. The road might not be owned by the private sector, or it could be owned by the private sector, but the ownership is not the point. The point is that it was private money that was pushed through a municipal bond that created a form of financing that built the road. And there's five major infrastructure platforms, uh, sewage, water, transportation, communications, and power. And for all five, there is some version of public-private investment. So uh, point one is we're talking about public-private investment. And point two is to contribute the public side of it, let's have a national bank with a network of state and local banks. That's, That's what the green bank idea is. So, you know, I think one sort of intuitive reaction to this is if these projects are profitable for private funding, for private financiers, what is the role of the public side of this uh, public-private partnership? What is the sort of state doing? The role is to do, uh, is to cause the projects to occur that wouldn't otherwise happen. And uh, they basically uh, fall into three categories, uh, which I call clean up, clear out, and catalyze. Uh, so here's clean up. So clean up is to invest public-private money in neighborhoods and communities where, uh, number one, carbon energy is not affordable and where the byproducts of creating carbon energy are not breathable. And so that's investment in renovating homes so that they are using rooftop solar or community solar and so that they're insulated uh, effectively. If you do that in the low to medium income households in the United States, the actual cost of that investment per home will be greater than the income of the household. So somebody else has to provide the money. It has to be the contractor says, I'll I'll put the money and you'll pay me back over time. That's the shared savings model. Well, the private sector uh, does not jump enthusiastically into that uh, activity. It's made almost no headway into that particular market. That market's potential size in West Virginia alone is more than $40 billion of investment. Well, this is, I mean, let's pause here because this is, uh, this is, I think, what confuses some people is there's a big pot of profit. There's a profitable market. There's money to be made. Why isn't private finance already flooding into these areas if there's so, you know, if there's so much money to be made? What's the barrier? In, in, the, in the case of investing in low to medium households, uh, number one, private sector investors uh, don't know the space because typically, even though the capital investment per household is twice the uh, median income, 
it's that means it's only eighty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So eighty, ninety thousand dollar financing that's beneath the purview of major commercial financiers mm. across the country. So that's the too small problem. Uh, number one, there's the don't understand problem, meaning the most private. Uh, sector financiers don't know whether an individual household is a credit risk or not. So because they don't know, they don't take the credit risk. Mm. And then number three, uh, they have more lucrative activities uh, to engage in, many other more lucrative activities. So <laughs> they, uh, it's, they, they say, why put the money into an $80,000 upgrade of a household in Marshall County, West Virginia, uh, where the return over time you know, might be in the neighborhood of four or five percent a year. You know, why, why do that? So it's not that it isn't profitable; it's that it isn't as profitable as investing in Microsoft or a data center or some other, right, right. You know, high growth activity. So therefore, the role of public investment is to uh, catalyze the private investment to take a little more risk to aggregate the uh, small financing uh, projects so that they can be sold as a package, to fund small businesses that will actually knock on doors and, and get people to agree to have the small business do the upgrade. So those are the, those are the primary roles uh, that the public part of the investment can play. And then the private sector money is pulled in. The goal is to pull the private sector money in. Right. So the Green Bank is, in, in a lot of ways, taking on the transaction costs. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's actually probably the core point you just made it. The second point, that's to catalyze the, the private sector investment. The clear out problem is to clear out the obstacles to massive private sector investment. So as you know very well, a major, major obstacle in the electricity market is stranded cost. Meaning the amount of money that a utility has invested in the old carbon power platform, which they need to recover somehow. And uh, the regulator and the utility says, well, I have to recover what I invested in the old before I can invest in the new. But we need them to invest in the new really at an accelerated rate in order to stop climate uh, calamity. So uh, how do you get rid of the stranded cost problem? You have the a green bank step in and say, I'll help you out on the stranded cost. And then uh, the utility, which is, you know, 80 some odd percent to 85 some odd percent in the country is a private entity, not a public entity, right? So then the utility goes, oh, well, fine. If the stranded cost problem is solved, I'll accelerate, you know, the move into the clean power platform. So that's clear out obstacles. And then the third was... Wait, on the clear out, that that sounds... The clearing out sounds more just like public grants, just just giving them money so that they, they can clear their plate. Is there some way that, that those kind of things pay themselves back? Yeah. I mean, uh, the technique... Yeah, yes, the technique is called securitization. I think you've written about this. You know, you basically securitize the stranded cost and the public entity gets paid back at a very slow rate over a fairly long period of time. Ah, right. So, so in this sense, the green bank is providing uh, patience yes. <laughs> that, that, yes. that private capital wouldn't. Perfect. Yes. Right. So, you know, so you clean up the hard hit areas, you clear out the obstacles, and then that's how you catalyze the private sector investment. And the net result uh, is that over a 10 year period, the accelerator, which is the congressional name for a national climate bank, 
the accelerator will pay for itself. Right. So really, this whole the whole idea of a green bank is kind of premised on the idea that markets are not, in fact, perfectly rational and, and are, in fact, leaving all sorts of profitable opportunities on the table that they just need to be sort of nudged into. Or you could say that they're not markets are not perfectly efficient. Right. Right. You would think that the financial crisis of 2007 <laughs> through nine proved that point for everybody, right? Yes, you, you would, would think. think that the volatility of uh, Robin Hood, you know, would be proving the point to anybody <laughs> right now. Um, but it's not really disputable that markets are not perfectly efficient at all times in all segments. Right. The problem when we talk about uh, the transition from carbon power to clean power is we can't wait for the markets to right. figure out how to achieve efficiency because we've got to get rid of the emissions basically yesterday. Right. So we would not be just jumping into a national green bank without experience. Um, you and the sort of coalition you lead have been helping to establish green banks in, in states and cities for years now. So tell us a little bit about sort of how, you know, what you've learned from that experience and how they are performing at that level. Are you, know, are you, are, are they, are they doing better or worse than you expected? Uh, better in all respects, except one, we haven't been able to attract massive public sector capital. Yeah. Well, state, that's because states don't have any, right? <laughs> that's, that's the lie. Um, and that's, that's, but in all other respects, uh, Ben Franklin said, experience keeps a dear school, but a fool will learn in no other. So I'm the fool. Uh, we presented the idea of a green bank to Larry Summers, Tim Geithner, and Peter Orzag in the 2008 and nine transition. And they said they didn't want to do it because they prioritized recapitalizing the big Wall Street banks, and they didn't want to create a green bank. And also the economists were suspicious of public-private investment. Huh. It seems like capitalizing a green bank relative to the amount of money involved in recapitalizing the big banks would have been, you know, kind of a rounding error. It's not really that much we're talking about, is it? As it ended up, the money for um, capitalizing Wall Street, which was uh, appropriated by Congress, was $700 billion, and uh, the Treasury Department did not even use $400 billion of that. Did not even use it. Huh. That would have been a, a nice green bank seed. Could have, they could have used, uh, you know, I don't know, a fourth of it, an eighth of it to have created a national bank. Or they could have said to one of the big commercial banks, you know, we'll give you extra capital for you to set up a national climate bank. Right. They didn't do these things, I think, really because there was a failure of imagination of disaster. That's a phrase from Henry James, the novelist. He said, you need to, you need to make sure you have the imagination of disaster. Not putting too fine a point on it, disaster is what the IPCC said we are now experiencing right. in the climate. You know, they just said it, right? And in 2008, the imagination that it would enable anyone to know that by 2021, we would have irreversibly committed to a staggering increase in temperature by uh, human causes. Uh, you know, it should have been knowable, but it wasn't knowable. Or if it was knowable, it wasn't act. It wasn't uh, acted upon. However, I would say you know, the the idea of the green bank was popular and bipartisan even then. So huh. it was passed in the House Energy and Commerce Committee by a fifty-one to six vote, and that means a lot of Republicans voted for it. And it was passed out of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee 
um, on a bipartisan vote. Uh, Senators Bingham and Democrat and Murkowski, Alaska, endorsed it. Uh, they also endorsed a clean electricity standard. Neither the uh, Green Bank nor the clean electricity standard ever got to the floor of the Senate. Had they gotten to the floor of the Senate, uh, they would have uh, passed rather easily. There probably would have been 65 votes. Uh, the Democrats accounted for, depending on the week, either 58, 59, or 60 of those votes. Uh, <laughs> and so it, it would have, it, both those things would have been law. Uh, they didn't become law. Uh, because the uh, Democrats uh, made the perfect the enemy of the good and and waited for the cap and trade bill that never emerged from committee. Oh, I remember. <laughs> I remember. So you didn't uh, we couldn't get a federal one back in 2008. So then you you uh, dispersed your minions out to the states and cities. And, and so where are the green banks now and, and, and what are they doing? Well, there are 21 of them in 15 states. And uh, there's a wait. How is that? How are there multiple ones in? Yeah, uh, Maryland, for example, has three. Uh, that's because the governor vetoed the idea of creating uh, one at the state level. So there's a nonprofit that uh, operates across the state, and then a county-sponsored green bank and a Baltimore green bank. Um, mm, interesting. But that's all because Larry Hogan, the governor, uh, wouldn't create a statewide green bank. In New York, there's a two. And, you know, kind of on and on uh, through 15 different states. And then there's uh, 22 more states where people are raising their hands saying, you know, uh, help us create a green bank. If the Senate budget resolution passes and if the reconciliation language matches the resolution, uh, then at last we will have the accelerator funded. And the very first thing that the accelerator should and would do would be to capitalize uh, green banks in every single state. So that means establishing them even in states where there currently is not one. That is correct. You know, we'd go to a we'd go to the governor of Tennessee. We would say, "Do you want to create one?" Well, here's the capital from the federal government. Here's the mission. It's defined in the statute. And if the governor said no, we'd ask the legislature. And if the legislature said no, we'd find a nonprofit that would do it. Uh, so you don't need really a government like you don't need the government of Tennessee theoretically, to be involved? Well, we'd ask them, but if they refused, <laughs> you know, if they treated it like, you know, like the, like the vaccine, you know, we, then we would, then we would move to a nonprofit because look, I mean, it's, we're at the risk of really being simple, simple uh, minded here. You know, we, we are all breathing the same air and the same emissions, not just nationally, but, you know, globally. And so we can't leave any state out of the conversion from carbon to clean. So would the would the primary function of the federal accelerator be to funnel money through these state entities, or is the well, the primary function is to is to accelerate uh, the transition from carbon to clean and, and and do it in a way that really helps low income households and creates a lot of jobs and lowers instead of increases prices to the consumer. So it's accelerate the transition while uh, helping low-income households and creating a lot of jobs and and not raising prices to consumers. So that's the mission. And the mission would go into, a, would be pursued primarily through the network of state and local green banks, because most of the solutions are, would have to be local. Not right. all, not all, but but most. Here's an example. It would really be great to find the incentives that caused heavily driven vehicles to be driven by electric motors, because heavily driven vehicles 
which maybe are about 10 to 15 million in the whole country, really heavily driven vehicles in a fleet of 200 million plus, maybe maybe at the most 20 million are truly heavily driven. The average, you know, per average mileage per year is 15,000 miles, you know, for a total of 3 trillion miles for the country, 15,000 times 200 million. Um, but the heavily driven vehicles are 70,000 miles a year, 100,000 miles a year, 150,000 miles a year. So you'd want to have an incentive system that would cause them to go electric as soon as possible because they're relatively small in number and they account for a huge fraction of the emissions. Right. Well, how would you implement that? You would do that locally. You know, you'd look for the small business person in Memphis, you know, or the uh, fleet that said, you know, operating in Nashville you know, or the uh, delivery trucks in Knoxville, and you would say, what does it take to convert you, you know, to electric? And you do it, you do it locally. You wouldn't say one size fits all. You wouldn't say, I mean, FedEx is in, is a great example. You know, they're headquartered in Tennessee. You would talk to FedEx locally. Right, right. So <clears throat> the federal money would just be funneled through the Tennessee-based uh, Green Bank. But with the unified mission. right. No, not not like everybody does whatever they like, you know, with the, the unified <laughs> right. mission, right? Right. So are there examples of, on the other side then, sort of non-local, like are, are there things that only sort of a federal bank could manage? Yeah, we would, we would call them um, special strategic situations. So an example would be a catalyzing transmission. Uh, so, so very often, of course. right? So very often, oh, first of all, almost by definition, transmission always crosses state borders. So consequently, it's not really going to be uh, productive to have multiple state green banks cooperate to to solve a transmission problem. Yeah, that that process is already complicated enough. I think. Complicated <laughs> enough, right? It's complicated enough. A typical obstacle that you'd want to solve for in transmission is to be the anchor tenant, mm. right? The, 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 the entity that says, I'll take the product, I'll pay for the, for the, for the product. And then all the other people that connect to the transmission line, all the, all the um, local distribution networks, they all say, well, if, if there's somebody that's guaranteeing, you know, the first slice of payment, then I'll join in and I'll sign up too. Right. So that's a, that's the anchor tenant problem that really is holds up transmission and is also uh, a fundamental problem for every big infrastructure project of any kind at all. You know, who's the first user, right? Right. So that's the kind of thing you'd, you'd want to see the National Green Bank step in and say, I'll guarantee that. Uh, another example would be a, a major uh, seacoast resiliency project that might uh, cross state lines like uh, between South Carolina and North Carolina. Uh, a third example uh, could be, going back to heavily driven vehicles, it could be national fleets like, uh, like a rental car fleet. Mm-hmm. So where you have a national or trans, uh, you know, or, or interstate problem, there you would want the centralized entity to act. And then lastly, you want the central entity to be aggregating all of the loans, selling them into the commercial market and raising new money to recycle the original and first and last government deposit. This is really important. The way to fund this green bank is one time, give it all the money 
and then never appropriate any money again and let it just recycle that money. So the idea is, it, is it going to make money? Like, is it, is it make enough to churn more out? Like, how's the, what's the, yes. how does it fund itself? Yes. And you, you know, if you were an investor, you'd be better off investing in Microsoft or JP Morgan, but the, right. but the goal is to, is in the aggregate to have all the loans, all the investments be positive. And in fact, over the last 10 years, uh, 99.38% of all green bank loans have been profitable. Oh, not wow. Very, not very profitable, but profitable. No Solyndra, no, uh, no, no, no failure that gets tied around their necks. There's nothing, nothing to demagogue here. Except for 0.62 of 1%. <laughs> right. Um, you, you, I saw you mention uh, uh, in, a, in a different interview that it's, that these green banks are not technically banks; they're mission-driven loan funds. Yeah, they're not deposit. They're not deposit-taking uh, banks. Um, why are they called green banks? Uh, I sat in Congressman Van Hollen's office in January of 2009, and I said, "This is what we what we want to do." He said, "It's a great idea." I said, "What do you want to call it?" He said, "I want to call it Green Bank." And I said, Congressman, green and bank are like the two most unpopular words you could possibly <laughs> uh, come up with. And he said, people will get used to it. <laughs> well, it mission-driven loan fund doesn't really trip off the tongue either. So, uh, But uh, one more technical point about the loans. You made a point of emphasizing, I saw elsewhere, that these are not guaranteed. This is not like the DOE loan program where the loans are backed by the sort of full faith and credit of the federal government. This is not like that. So what's that distinction? Really, really, really important uh, thing that you're saying. This idea of a, a nonprofit institution is not new. It is the way the government has chosen to achieve goals uh, in the Corporation of Public Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. The government chose to to have non-commercial broadcast by funding a corporation for public broadcasting, uh, but it didn't want to control it because it didn't want uh, uh, Sesame Street to become a propaganda agency. Right. <laughs> right. And the government um, gives money to the World Bank to accomplish uh, international purposes, but it doesn't guarantee the World Bank's obligations on the U.S. government's balance sheet. And so, uh, and there are many, many other examples of, of using nonprofits precisely to avoid government control and to avoid the government guaranteeing the debt. A, you know, a counterexample is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right. where everybody always knew that in a crisis, the government would guarantee right. debt. And when the crisis occurred in the summer of 2008, in a, a bill called HERA, H-E-R-A, wife of Jove, uh, <laughs> in the bill called HERA, uh, uh, George Bush signed a law that said that the government would guarantee the get the debt of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So that's that's what this isn't. So this is a, avoiding the moral the moral hazard uh, that that comes along with that. Precisely, um, and it also by not having the federal government uh, guarantee, it means that the form of financing can be very flexible. It can be it can be convertible debentures. It can be equity. It it can be. Uh, 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 secondary debt. It can be primary obligations. It can be deferred payments. You can have all kinds of flexibility. Um, But most importantly, 
you can have the deposit in the nonprofit be the basis for borrowing and lending, which is exactly what a commercial bank does with its deposits. And that's how you get the leverage. And that is the reason why the accelerator would pay for itself over a decade. It would borrow and relend on its on its deposit, which is the public funding. And uh, it would be able to do that uh, enough times over 10 years that it would generate uh, enough profit for the private sector that in turn, there'd be enough tax revenue to pay for the initial deposit. Ah, I see. I see. A related question, you know, if I'm a listener out there of a conservative bent, say, and I hear, uh, you know, sort of giant federally funded institution that's meant to shovel money out the door, <laughs> obviously, my first concern is how do you prevent this from just becoming a giant slush fund where, you know, sort of politically favored projects get money, et cetera, et cetera. What sort of oversight and, and you know, what sort of assurances can we have that this will be independent and, and, and mission driven and not end up captured? Well, the uh, uses of the money are defined by the uh, statute that conveys the money. Right. So that it can't spend on what it isn't authorized to spend. Secondly, uh, to have suspenders as well as a belt, the charter of the nonprofit defines what it can do. Third, it would uh, be more transparent than 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 anything, <laughs> meaning <laughs> every quarter, you know, for all the world to see and everybody in Congress to see and every reporter to see. Right. All the all the uses of the money would be uh, disclosed, you know, but ultimately, um, as is the case, whether you're talking about the Department of Defense or whether you're talking about the University of Tennessee or whether you're talking about the Green Bank, you do have to trust the people. And, you know, nobody should ever think that the, the people don't matter. Right. Well, I'm going to get back to that later, but but uh, one thing I want to hit before we go on too much longer, you mentioned this a couple of times about um, directing money to low-income projects. What is the sort of, I mean, I imagine it differs from bank to bank depending on their charters, but sort of for this federal accelerator, what would there be some sort of equity screen or equity set aside or what is the yeah. sort of, how will it address equity? The uh, The bill that's been passed in the House of Representatives this year Wait, can we pa pause there? That's the bill that will, is passed in the House. Is that the one that's kind of on the table for reconciliation, as far as you know? Yes. What What is believed is that the drafters of the reconciliation package in the Senate, and they're going to begin work, you know, momentarily, right? Really and truly momentarily. And <laughs> uh, there, what what I imagine is that they'll look at the bill that was enacted in the House a few months ago, and they'll translate that into reconciliable language. Right. And that language requires that forty percent of the money benefit low to medium income households. Got it. And so, similarly, any state and local green bank would be obliged to adhere to that requirement. Obliged in order to get federal money or are they are, are those equity screens built into those state banks already or is that a is that like a common thing in well the, not in the ones already but but if the accelerator is funded then the accelerator we would have the accelerator and have have a contract with the green bank in tennessee that said this is what you got to do right um so low to medium income households 
which you know you know Tennessee. I mean, they're they're low to medium income households all over the state, right? Um, yeah. They would they would necessarily be benefiting for at minimum of forty percent of the money. Interesting. And so you know the sort of the obvious uh, example there is upgrading homes, you know, low income homes with insulation and solar panels or whatever else. Are there other examples sort of like, are there, do you have those sort of favorites? In- That's a very big example, but another example would be uh, low to medium income households uh, in, in some and maybe many cases uh, have people that use uh, vehicles for work that are heavily driven. Maybe in a rural area, they drive very far to find gainful employment. Maybe they're a a small business operating out of the house and they're driving the, you know, the truck around all the time to do their work, to, you know, to to work on contracts. So, you know, that's a good place where you would be replacing a heavily driven vehicle with an electric car, but also benefiting, you know, the the, uh, low to medium income household because the electric car is going to be cheaper. And then a third example is, you know, if you're able to clean up a neighborhood and and the people aren't breathing, you know, the emissions, then uh, the health benefits are going to be uh, quite real and quite immediate. What about, uh, this is (laughs) slightly a side topic, but it's one of my personal obsessions. What about the whole cluster of issues around transit and zoning and density? You know, this is sort of a, a climate topic that uh, a lot of people <laughs> I know are infuriated doesn't get more attention. So is there, would there be any way of funneling some of this money, say for a public transit system or something like that? Oh, you mean public transit? I, yes. You said zoning and I got thrown off there a little bit. Uh, well, well, transit, transit and zoning and density and just city issues. <laughs> well, uh, you know, what I uh, hope and believe the accelerator would do would be to complement all the other uh, programs that are going to be in the reconciliation package or are in the uh, bipartisan deal that the Senate has just voted today. Mm. And so the Department of Transportation, you know, in, in both of these uh, instruments is going to, you know, have a lot of programs uh, to put into effect that involve public transit and where there's a missing piece, something that the accelerator, you know, should pay for to kind of liberate the Department of Transportation's money, that would be a, a complementary role to play. But 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 we have to wait and see for the legislative smoke to clear to, to know exactly what has been passed. <laughs> right. Right. We're all <clears throat> on the edge of our seats over here. Uh, do you do you have a favorite when you're you know, sort of advocating for green banks before before legislatures. I saw you testified to Congress. Are, are is there a favorite success story? Like, are there are there particular projects that you've seen move forward that couldn't have happened without green banks that you like to cite? Uh, yeah, there are many because I was on the board of the Connecticut Green Bank for six years. You know, in the in the uh, kind of important and interesting category, uh, we electrified uh, a dam in Connecticut. There are literally thousands of dams that don't generate electricity that could generate electricity, uh-huh. but they're all rel- relatively small scale and the commercial financiers don't want to get involved. And it's a great role for a state and local green bank. So the coalition you run, the request uh, to federal lawmakers was for $100 billion as seed funding. And, you know, as you've emphasized before, this would be sort of a one-time, the idea is a one-time grant that gets the thing going and then it would be uh, self-sustaining from then on. 
I believe in Biden's bill, Biden's jobs bill, he proposed $27 billion. Yeah, that's right. So is that enough? I mean, could a bank well, leverage that up and, 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 do, and, and make it bigger or sort of like, what's your, what's your take on, on, on the level there? You know, the uh, story about if you chained a thousand lawyers together and you threw them at the bottom of the sea, what would you call that? <laughs> yes, I'm familiar. A good start. <laughs> Anyhow, what I'm saying is, look, in all in all candor, what we're talking about here is a good start. $27 billion would be a good start. $100 billion would be a better start. But we've got to start. You know, we've right. got to catalyze public-private investment and really prove that private sector money can flow into these activities at a far greater rate and quite safely and quite prudently. So that's that's the goal. Right. And if it's 27 or if it's 100, you know, it'll be enough. Uh, we've got to have enough to get these green banks going in every state. Can't leave anybody out. Uh, so more is better, but 27 would be a good start. Is, is there any kind of, um, this might be kind of a silly question, but is there any kind of like upper end? Like, do you have any sense of like kind of the limits of a bank or the limits of the economy to absorb it or anything like that? Like how much money could you deal with? So the way to look at this at the macro level is what is private savings and what is private investment? Mm. And ever since the crisis of 2008 and nine, private investment in the United States has been much, much higher than private investment. In other words, people are sitting on people, whether they are pension funds or whether they are commercial banks or whether they are high net worth individuals, they're sitting on a very large amount of cash that is not invested in productive and useful infrastructure. And what's the macro reason for that? Is there, are there just not enough investment opportunities? Yes. Uh, the economists sometimes call it secular stagnation. They sometimes right. call it a savings glut. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, it's uh, fear of the future, <laughs> and and investors, you know, many investors are paid to be fearful because fearful can be prudent. But right. but the problem is, we simply have to clear away the obstacles, mitigate the fear, and unlock that that private sector investing. And if you say to me how much, you know, uh, quite literally, uh, if private investment had equaled private savings since 2009, which is normally the case in a healthy economy, the savings and the investment are roughly the same, roughly. Mm -hmm. If they if it had equaled, the economy would probably be about five to seven trillion dollars bigger, Woo. bigger. So what we're looking at here uh, could be and should be in the carbon to clean transition, it should be the biggest investment opportunity of the century. The increase of wind and solar power from the current market share to the necessary market share mm -hmm. is about a four to five X increase in market share, about four to five times increase in market share. That alone is about a $3 trillion business opportunity. Mm. So there's no way that public investment should need to or ever would uh, invest that much money. The goal is to catalyze it and to have all, almost all of that be private money. Right, right. So theoretically, um, it would be easy to deploy $100 billion. <laughs> Oh, very easy. You know, I think this is kind of helpful for a layperson. A helpful way to think about a green bank is you've got this giant pool of savings sitting there with fearful investors and sort of the role of the green bank is to go before the investors and ease some of these transition costs, set up some of the structures 
basically prepare things so that it's just easier for private capital to flow into these projects. And it has to happen quickly because we don't have a moment to lose in terms of reducing emissions. And that's the, uh, you know, look, if we had all the patience in the world, you know, then if we had world enough in time, you know, as the poem says, you know, then, then 30, 40, 50 years from now, the whole world would be based on wind and solar and maybe right. a little bit of nuclear because it's cheaper. Well, we don't have 30, 40, 50 years. Right. So, uh, and I would just say, you know, I've been part of this before. Uh, when I was the FCC chairman for the Clinton administration in the 90s, the question was, how was private, private investment going to make it possible for you and me to talk, you know, via the internet and all these other, you know, communications devices that didn't exist then? And how were we going to go from wireline to wireless? How were we going to go from analog to digital? How are we going to go from a long distance phone call to what we're doing right now? And right. the answer is the government needed to clear out regulatory obstacles. It needed to catalyze private sector investment. It needed to encourage the transition, which is what we did. And about the same amount of money was spent over 15 years to have the communications industry be completely transformed as we now need to completely transform the energy sector. Right. Just a couple of additional political questions. You you mentioned that, you know, there's transparency, there's going to be some oversight, but in the end, you have to trust the people involved managing this, which raises the question, um, which is a pressing political question lately. As Republicans and Democrats trade control, we've seen policy kind of wildly swing back and forth. And we've seen Republican, you know, we saw Trump roll back or destroy or degrade all kinds of Obama initiatives, green initiatives, um, regulatory initiatives. So is there anything you could do setting this thing up to make it resistant to Republicans trying to screw it over or, or twist it in some way or funnel money to you know, like in Australia. Yeah, I know what you mean. When the conservatives took over, they tried to Shanghai uh, green bank money for fossil fuel projects. So is there any structural or sort of regulatory way to prevent that? Or is that just the nature of democratic government? You have to uh, not put your trust in regulation, right? Political change changes regulations. Uh, mm. So you have to trust the integrity and viability of a nonprofit institution. And you have to say, you know, let's have a let's have a bipartisan or nonpartisan board. Let's have the charter and the and the and the conditions of funding be clearly defined. Um, but let, but then let's trust the people and let's and let's say not that it's more important than politics, but that the vagaries of politics from election to election, you know, can't change the purpose because the purpose has to be executed on or we're cooked. Literally, right. right? So that that's that's why you have to do this. And the idea that there can be and should be trustworthy institutions, I mean, that's 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 a belief that you have to hold to have any any success. <laughs> yes, I noticed. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you have to true. you have to believe in that, uh, whether they are religious institutions or whether they are nonprofits or civil uh, other examples of civil society. You have to believe in that, and it, you have to try this one. And and you, and you think uh, that Republicans could be sort of, you know, they're all over the place on climate change right now. You think they could be brought around to uh, affirmatively supporting? The state and local green banks, you know, in every case where they exist now, they are 
where they exist, they are, they have, they draw bipartisan support. Um, huh. as I said, the idea was bipartisan in 2009, right. Uh, the house bill that was passed had Republican co-sponsors, you know, it should be the case, you know, that it's that you regard this mission as nonpartisan or bipartisan there, you know, it's a big country and there's always somebody that doesn't want to do anything, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You know, we don't really have a choice here. We've got to we've got to try every institutional technique, every technology, every method, uh, because we can't uh, lose the battle against climate catastrophe. Right. So the green banks, your baby. Uh, I assume that's what you're you're um, you know making calls about and lobbying for. But are are there other? If that's your number one, what's your like number two and three for things you want to see make it into reconciliation? Do you have? What, what do you think are the, are the most For important? For me, this is number one, two, and three. You know, the shoemaker <laughs> should stick to his last, and I've been doing this for 12 <laughs> years. And, I, you know, the main thing I need to do is summon all of my energy to focus on this one thing and not be distracted. But I'm not alone. I mean, you know, we have – this is a big movement now. You know, we have hundreds of people employed in state green banks already. We run a consortium of those green banks. You know, we meet every two weeks. We've been doing it for years. You know, we've raised more than $5 billion of private sector money into the different projects of these green banks. We have all the, we have more than 100 environmental organizations supporting this. We have the president supporting it. The bipartisan House of Representatives voted for it. I'm, I'm not trying to say I'm not involved. I'm trying to say, you know, it ain't just me. <laughs> sure. And as a as a final question, we started, uh, we started with a little uh, history of how Obama... Um, in your estimation, kind of went too small, thought too small, um, hedged his bets too much. So by way of sort of wrapping up, I'm curious, what is your assessment of Biden so far, Biden and Democrats so far? Does it seem to you like they've taken those lessons to heart? Do you see, oh, are yeah. they doing what you want them to oh, do yeah, so I, far? Oh, absolutely. The bipartisan bill is an, is an amazing accomplishment. Amazing. It is pretty remarkable. I can't, I don't know why it exists. I can't, it's I can't remarkable. It. it can't be gainsaid. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, what did they get? Uh, 19 Republicans, something like that, that voted for it? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it is really amazing. And, you know, the president had the patience, the Democratic leadership had the patience, the Republicans who were helping, you know, were willing. And the previous president said, don't vote for it. And, and uh, 19 of them voted for it. Yeah. And the COVID relief bill was. And the COVID relief bill. They didn't go small on that either. Absolutely. Like they've really been. This is a great country. And, <laughs> you know, we, you know, we try pretty much everything and then we usually get it right. It's just that right now we don't have a moment to lose with respect to the climate. That's the reason why this thing is called the accelerator. <laughs> right. All right. Well, thank you for taking so much time. Thank you. I really admire your work and thanks for talking to me. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And, uh, and I hope uh, I hope we get this get this over the finish line. Bye bye now. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.